Hi, my name's Jennifer Brick Murtazashvili of the University of Pittsburgh, and I'm here with Colleen Wood, a PhD candidate in political science at Columbia University. And today we're talking about the growing political unrest in Kyrgyzstan. So Colleen, before we get started into analyzing sort of the big picture, I was wondering if you could just walk us through what's going on. Yeah, definitely. Um, in Kyrgyzstan on October 4th, there were parliamentary elections that there were reports of widespread vote buying throughout the country um, in response to these accusations of unfair play. There were massive crowds that gathered in the capital to protest both this cheating and also the overall results of the elections in which only four of 16 parties competing managed to secure seats. And all four of these parties were overtly pro-government and um, in line with the current powers that be. Um, and these protests escalated to the point um, of violence that the police forces responded with tear gas, with rubber bullets. Um, and in response to this violent pro violence, protesters ended up um, taking over and occupying the White House, um, which is what Kyrgyzstan calls the building that houses its parliament and president. Um, and from there, a massive um, power vacuum opened up and over the next two weeks, there was back and forth over trying to restore order, figure out what should be the next steps with regard to elections as the Central Election Commission annulled the results. Um, people were resigning from their positions. The prime minister and speaker of parliament resigned, leaving this vast power vacuum um, that only was filled in the last week with um, a man who until these protests was in prison, Sadr Japarov, um, he suddenly, he, he pushed himself through as prime minister and then was able to um, once current president or for now former president um, Sorenbay Jayambekov resigned, the prime minister was able to take up his position as acting president. So a lot of uncertainty, um, a lot crammed into just, just two weeks. So you're telling me that a, a man who was just recently in prison is now the president of Kyrgyzstan? Yes, he is. Yes, that he was so, in jail for hostage taking and trying to launch a coup back in 2013. And what's his reputation? I think that that depends well, we largely on who you ask. Um, his reputation depends on who you ask. That um I think until two weeks ago, until the night of these protests, no one had been thinking about him as a major figure in Kyrgyz politics. Certainly no one would have put him forward as a, an option for parliamentarian, let alone prime minister, let alone acting president. But um, I think that a lot of people see him as somewhat anti-establishment, that he is someone who has promised to nationalize Kyrgyzstan's gold mines. He has promised to stomp out corruption. And I think because he's been out of the political game since 2013, almost a decade now, people see him as not entangled in the political mess that is the ruling regime. So is this, I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about why this is important? Like, is Russia behind this? Is there geopolitics involved in all of this? Or is this really an internal matter? I would say that this is an internal matter. And in the piece that you and I wrote for Monkey Cage, we go over some of the institutional design elements that we thought that we think um, ended up fostering this instability. Um, so that is that Kyrgyzstan has incredibly high threshold um, for parliamentary elections for parties to actually get into parliament, which has issues for representation and accountability. Um, and we also 
found that the president having a one-term limit um, really shortens the time horizon and incentivizes corruption, incentivizes cutting corners in order to ensure that they have a stable legacy once they leave office. Um, and all of those things definitely played out. Um, when it comes to geopolitics, I think any time that uh, something happens in the Russian periphery in Eurasia, it's it's very quick to jump to Russia or in the case of Central Asia, jump to China um, to see how these big powers care about or invested in both um, maybe fanning the flames of unrest or are invested in stability and in resolving them. And I think what's interesting here is that at the same time, we have Belarusian protests, we have a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And with this unrest in Kyrgyzstan, which is relatively less intense, it was solved much more quickly. Um, given that Russia didn't really react or get involved in Kyrgyzstan um, or in, in Belarus or in Armenia and Azerbaijan, we haven't seen very much intervention on the part of Russia. So what do you think is, so, you know, this seems, one, one of the narratives that you seem to be uh, telling us here is this is almost like an anti-corruption story, that people are really fed up with the corruption in the elections. They don't know who to turn to. So one of the solutions to solve this corruption problem in government is to turn to someone who was involved in this in the past. Yes, definitely. And in the past two years, uh, civil society has become a lot more practiced in naming exactly who is implicated in corruption, exactly how much they've been taking, and exactly what steps that they want the government to take, rather than just yelling, we don't like this. Um, they've gotten a lot better at articulating exactly what they're asking for, which I think is promising. So that gives us a lot to look forward to in the coming days and weeks. So I just want to thank you for such a fascinating conversation. And it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks. Take care.